0: Well, well, it is Friday, beautiful people. I'm Babs Rosavi. Welcome to Love Babs, Love Talk. It's Friday, Friday. It feels good that it's Friday. And you know, listen, it's not like I work in the coal mines, and and I'm looking forward to the weekend. I don't work in the coal mine. I don't work in a plant. I don't work in the fields. I talk for a living. (laughs) I talk for a living. And I curate editorial for the inner city. That's not farming. That's not field handing. That's not sharecropping. That's not working in the coal mines. So I, I'm looking forward to Friday as if I am all those things. <laughs> and it's a holiday weekend. Woo whoop. And it's, a ho- it's Labor Day weekend. You know, where we all continue to wear white into October or whenever the hell we feel like it. Listen, I have winter white pants. No one tells me what to wear. I wear what I want to wear. Who are these police? And I get it. There's a history to that. So there's a history to why you don't wear white after Labor Day. And it was for laborers. But uh, no. I wear white as often as I like, whenever I like. So. Anyway, happy uh, Labor Day weekend. Uh, It's a time when we recognize organized labor and remind ourselves uh, all the good things that we have because of organized labor. Say whatever you want. Say you think they have too much power. Say that you think they have too much influence. Say, you know, your dues pays for stuff and they don't really do anything. Say whatever you want. None of that would be true. Because if we did not have organized labor, children would still be working in the coal mines and in the fields. And if we didn't have organized labor, uh, we wouldn't have weekends. And if we didn't have organized labor, uh, companies would uh, continue to lock employees in manufacturing plants. So, and, and Uh, And you wouldn't have anybody to negotiate salary, fairness, and benefits, and all the things that we enjoy as a civilized nation. So, high five to uh, organized labor around the world. And for those that are fighting and laying down their lives still for organized labor, for the right to organize and and to work in just, humane, fair places. Let us not forget that. Let us not forget that. So, so when everybody gets in there, all the unions of blah blah blah, don't forget. So I, I see I see all these Trump supporters are mighty quiet. <laughs> these, these people are such fools. <laughs> I've never seen so many. So many fools in real time in my whole life, my whole life. It's like, you know, when you watch those shows and the carnival comes to town and the and the guy is barking, you know, the snake oil. And I think that's what Donald Trump is, was, is, still is. And people just thought, oh, this sounds he's 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 going to do it. (laughs) It's going to be anything but honest. Reputable. It's smart. He's he's smart. He, he's smart enough to know how to hustle people and con people. He's the number one con artist. You know, he's a con artist. And people didn't see through that. It's like watching, you know, when you watch wrestling and people argue with you that it's real. It's not real. That's not real. It's not real. <laughs> I don't know. I it's not that I don't have no love for Republicans. It's that I have no love for Republicans. That's it. I just think they're terrible people. They're terrible people. They're mostly white supremacists. And, uh, and, and, I, and you know, listen, you Republicans who will say you're not white supremacist, I don't see you out there saying that. I don't see you out there refuting that. I don't see you out there saying this is the kind of America we want. I don't see that. What I see is gaslighting, smoke screens, and lying. <laughs> Here's the thing with these Republicans. They'll get on a bandwagon about some mess that they hate. Like voter suppression. Remember when they went on voter suppression? They went on this old voter fraud vibe. They went on this voter voter voter, voter fraud vibe. They went on a mission. Guess who the people that they found committing the voter fraud? Them! <laughs> That's like Lord Black Jesus these people that they are the they are the consummate leaders of look at this hand don't look at this hand <laughs> They're the ones screaming about oh we can't have. bathrooms that everybody could use but it's them in the bathroom solic- soliciting kids and stuff it's them <laughs> I was like what are y'all doing So every time I hear a Republican come out against anything, I feel like there's a backstory to that. I just feel like there's a backstory, <laughs> and they keep, God bless their hearts; they can't help themselves. <laughs> and that's the Santas in Florida. I, Florida people, I, I, y'all, you know what? Y'all can help yourselves. You can get up out of the mire. You can't. You, and I know it's hard because this is what Florida's Floridians enjoy, particularly white ones who have money. You know, there's no there's no tax on their income. So so they can rest easy with that, you know, and and they got a governor who sort of speaks a language that they feel comfortable with. He doesn't do a damn thing. They've got all kinds of problems. And now they want to dumb down the population. But that's a tactic. When you dumb down the population, i.e. mess with education, you can control people a lot easier when they don't know. When they can't search, research, think for themselves, you can control them a lot easier. You know, it's when people sort of get to the truth of things, when they read for themselves, and not that propaganda crap, not that, that mess that's questionable by questionable people that sort of plays both sides to the middle. I, you know, I can't stand that mess. I was like, that's not the truth. That is, I'm going to take a little bit of that. I'm going to take a little bit of this. And then I'm going to roll it all up and throw it on the page. And then I'm going to let people sort of feel like it's the truth when it's not. When it's not. You know, I just I just, uh, I just, just feel some kind of way. And so all those people who I know voted for Trump, who like Trump, y'all are fools. You were fools in the beginning. You're fools now. You're even more foolish now. Because now you don't know what to do. Because now, now you're your leader. You know, in, created it, created an insurrection, <laughs> set, set off all kinds of dog whistles and y'all are like, and now he got all these classified documents, holed up at the house <laughs> and then, and y'all come on TV, talk about, well, why didn't they just ask for them? Um, why do we have to ask for documents? that should not have left the building. That's number one. Number two, they've been asking for damn near a year now and he won't give them up. So yes, you had to get the judge, get a search warrant, sign off. These are the reasons why we need all this stuff. And the judge was like, oh damn, we go get this, go get it. (laughs) And here's the thing. They called him and said, listen, told the staff, We coming on Tuesday at around one o'clock or nine o'clock or whatever time it was, had opened the back door. We come in. Everybody knew. So there was no surprises. They didn't roll up there with guns drawn or any of that foolishness. Thanks. Listen, we come in, we bring in a fleet. We got to get the documents. Don't trash them. Don't burn them. Don't do stupid stuff. So the staff was prepared. That's why everybody was like, because, you know, Mar-a-Lago was like some sort of resort. So people, you know, got jobs to do. And nobody ever talks about how he got all them guest workers working for the, for the, for the, for the, for the for Mar-a-Lago. He ain't hiring Floridians. He hiring people from other countries on a guest visa and paying them less than minimum wage. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's like, it's like being a slave owner in a lot of ways. I'm going to import some help. I'm going to pay him less than what I would pay people in my own country. See what I'm saying? How do you how do you get behind a guy like that? How do you? How do you get behind a guy like that that don't even believe his own patriotic crap? How do you get behind that? And all these talking heads, man, they just sit there. And Mitch McConnell is the biggest fool. Wait, then he talks about his wife. Trump talks about Mitch McConnell's wife, calling her shady, all kinds of stuff. What are you gonna do, Mitch? You're gonna go over there and kick Donald Trump's ass? No, you're gonna do just like Ted Cruz. You're gonna suck it up and you're gonna be quiet. Because you know what? At the end of the day, you want them votes. That's all you care about. We want the votes because we want to stay in power to continue to terrorize the American public. That's what we want to do. Now, if there's some Republicans out there who think that I'm talking out of turn, call me up. Send me, put something in the chat. Tell me I'm wrong. I'm not wrong. Listen, where I come from, where I come from, if a man calls another man's wife out her name, it's it's going to be, it's going to be, you know, F around and find out. That's just where I come from. Everybody ain't from where I'm from. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> so, These cats, these cats sit up here and they just, they, first of all, and this is, this whole crap about we, we, these men, we against abortion. I don't see not one piece of bill on the floor talking about vasectomy for boys at the age of 13. Because you can reverse a vasectomy. You can reverse it. You can reverse it. But I don't, I don't hear nobody, I don't hear nobody putting that legislation forward. I don't hear anybody saying, you know what? Boys have to go through sex education courses. You can make it through their little church. I don't care. And and until you're 21, you can't have sex. And if you're caught having sex, there's going to be a penalty. Because you're putting the burden of pregnancy just on the backs of women, which is none of your damn business. Oh, I'm so sick of it. And then these white women. That tote that Republican piss gets on my last nerve. Y'all are voting against your best interest at every turn. You think white men going to save you? Well, they might save you. They might save you in the face of if you're going to, you know, jump, jump, jump races. (laughs) They might want to save you for that. But for the most part, y'all vote. Listen, we showed up in mass for hillary clinton we did sisters did we showed up we were like we knew we saw we understood she would be a better president than the clown that got it but white men and white women oh no 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 i was like white women we we got you to the to the 10 goal line all you had to do was punt all you had to freaking do was punt nope oh no we're not gonna do that not gonna do it (laughs) we're not gonna we're not gonna we're not gonna vote our interest (laughs) we're not (laughs) so so now we so now we got we've got a a democracy crisis right because these people put out there that you know the 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 election was stolen they didn't find no voter registration fraud. There's nothing wrong with these machines. The old people are now running their mouths about, let's, let's go back to the old school way of doing it, where people had to write out, and we had to hand count. Why? You would not accept that kind of thinking around anything else in your damn life. You would not. You would not. You would not go back to not having an ATM machine. You're not going back to, not having all the technology that you have. You just wouldn't do it. So why would you want to go back to a voting system that takes you back, I don't know, to the 1600s? Why would you do that? Makes no sense. You know why? Because the only way that Republicans can win is if they steal. That's it. They know it. We know it. Everybody around the world knows it. They can't win unless they gerrymander, unless they do voter suppression, unless they tell lies. That's the only way that they could win. And they know this. They know it. They can't win on a record. They can't win on concern. They can't win on on caring about the country. (laughs) Give me one example in the last 20 years where the Republicans cared about anything anything that has to do with people. They want smaller government. Why would you want smaller government when the population is growing? Why would you have smaller government when nothing would ever get done? You like standing in the line at the DMV because that's that would be smaller government. You want to see people standing in lines in social security offices. You want to see people standing in lines across this country. Why, why would you want that? And why wouldn't you want people to have good government jobs? I just don't understand that mess. Why wouldn't you want to pay to hire people to fix the roads, the tunnels, and the bridges? Why aren't you thinking, why aren't we thinking like that? Why are we like, oh, we have to have small, we only want one person. we want a smaller government. You know how you get, you know how you can cut some money? Cut your salaries. Everybody in Congress, everybody who legislators cut your salaries y'all clocking in at 175 g's cut that salary cut cut it down to 50 everybody makes 50 55,000 see if you run for office then see i just want to see <laughs> cut your salaries cut your medical benefits you want you want to show the country that you care cut your benefits cut your salaries give up your apartments in dc <laughs> Be get a hostel. Y'all got to stay in a hostel now. How about that? Stay in a not no swanky place on Dupont Circle. Get get a hostel, and y'all, when you come to DC, y'all share rooms. <laughs> don't talk to me about. Don't talk to me, please, because I I could do this all day. I could show the hypocrisy of things all day long, because it just I just see it. I don't even. I don't even have to read about it so much. I just see the foolishness. So you could do that. That's all I'm saying. Just I'm just saying. I'm just saying. So, so now we, we, we're, we're in this space. And I think Biden is right. We are in the fight of our lives and every election is such. We can't even get, we can't even get the, the voter rights laws passed one time without it having to be revisited every 10 years or five years or whatever. You know, we just got anti-lynching laws on the books. Who, who are these Republicans talking to? I, I think, and, I, and, I, and they, they are the masters of wearing people down. That's, that's really what, what gets people's nerves. They are the masters of wearing people down. And people get, this is how people get frustrated with politics because of the shena- that shenanigan. You know, the fact that Jon Stewart had to stand out there and cuss them out about not voting for veterans to get access to the health care that they needed from what war? <laughs> from the Vietnam War? <laughs> what? Come on now. You know what? This is what I want to see happen. The next time they can't vote on veterans, then, then people should boycott serving in the military. I know that's awful to say because we pride ourselves on having a a voluntary military, but guess who's volunteering? And yes, the majority of people in the military are white, but it is disproportionately black and Latino and other. So if, if, if folks who are thinking about the military, this is what I invite you to do. When they come to these high schools and they come to high schools, you ask them, How do y'all care for veterans after the fact? And if that is not satisfactory, then I would suggest you get up and go look at another occupation until the the U.S. government decides that they're going to take care of its vets. That's it. That's that's where I'm at with this. It it should not take a celebrity screaming and cussing out legislators to take care of war vets. It's shameful to me. We ought to be ashamed, but yet we want to be the best, the brightest, the fastest, and all of this. But yet, after the fact, we don't take care of these people. This is this is what I think. If 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 you in the military and you die in service or are harmed, you should be cared for. Not only you should you be cared for your kids ought to go to school. I listen, my uncle was killed in, in, in Vietnam. His kids and his widow benefited from the GI Bill, they benefited from. From, from the benefits uh, of his service, you know. Now, I know my aunt had to fight tooth and nail to continue benefits and all these other things. That's why she never remarried. She, she didn't remarry until way later in life because she wanted to make sure that her kids was taken care of. But we shouldn't have to do that. It should be just an automatic thing. It should be an automatic thing. But listen, 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 listen. That's another pet peeve of mine. That if we're not taking care of veterans, why, do, why are we even having wars? If we're not gonna take care of the people who go out there and put their lives on the line, then why are we even doing it? it anybody can send anybody off to war it, it, from behind a desk when you are not in harm's way, but you send somebody else's daughters and sons, nieces and nephews and grandchildren to fight wars, because, you know, we have to have presence in the world. And believe me, I believe in having presence in the world. And I believe in having a fully funded, well supported military force. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. So I'm just saying, whatever, we got to do better. And Republicans are, are, are they just they just know to everything. They don't say, I don't even know what their yes is. What is the yes? When, 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 when President Obama was like putting together the, uh, the, the Health Care Act and, and they were like, we don't like it. Well, come to the table with what you do like. Oh, no, we're not even entertaining this conversation. American people, blah, blah, blah. They need to be able to pick and choose. Blah, blah, blah. I don't know how they could sit where they sit and know that their countrymen are suffering and that the largest number of bankruptcies in this country is due to medical debt. I don't know how particularly Mitch McConnell sitting in West Virginia, that fool sitting in Mississippi, all these governors and all these people that represent these poor ass states that don't want to expand the medical the the uh, American medical care don't want to expand that for their people. On what? Because they don't want to be seen as humane? Like, you don't care about your neighbors? You don't care that your school teachers and Walmart employees are on public assistance because entities won't pay? That so I want people to break it down to its lowest common denominator when they have these conversations, and they think they are aligning themselves with these people, and they're talking out both sides of their neck. And then you're suffering, you're suffering. I I don't understand that level of suffering. Like we could do so much better. We could have the best healthcare in the world, the rival other first world countries. Developed nations, but we don't want to do that. We have the highest infant mortality rate in the world. You know who's like maybe above us? Like third world countries. You know what third world countries are? Places where they don't have access to roads, medical care, water, that kind of stuff. And here we are, the city on the hill, and we can't. We can't can't provide good drinking water. We can't provide good roads and bridges. Our air isn't clean. What even are we doing? What is America becoming? And why are we allowing these people to run this thing in the ground? I asked Mr. McConnell, what are you doing in West Virginia? What, what, What are you doing? What are you doing for this country? It's, other than drawing $175,000 and, and your wife just stepped down from her big ass job or did she even step down? I don't know. I just I just get riled up because we just you know they, they throw out these these dog whistle things and it takes us off the path of getting to the heart of how we can be a better country. you know, out there, running around. You got that dumb Miss Green out there. She's stupid, I, unequivocally stupid. And and they're all sitting around like, yeah, 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 we know. Yeah, yeah, you know, we know. But because she's got a base that's supporting that foolishness, that's all they care about. The stupid following the stupid. They just like it because the stupid vote. They vote. I know. Oh, perhaps you should call them stupid. Well, I don't know what else to call them. I don't know what else to call them. Because clearly they're not interested in truth. They're not interested in being good neighbors. They're not interested in being good citizens. They're not interested in any of that. They're not. How can you be interested in being a good citizen when your neighbor doesn't have health insurance? Or your kid's school don't have the books that they need or they don't have the teachers or you hamstring teachers. You don't want them to teach anything. Not anything about race or the founding of this country or how black people got here. Let's start there. How did black people get to this country? There's all kinds of ways you could tell the truth, I guess, but they don't even want to do that. I guess we just parachuted it. (laughs) How do you talk about the indigenous people in the massacre of them? How how the West was won? Are you kidding me? If we are not willing, and and this is the thing that kills me the most, the most, that when folks come over here to attend universities, when folks come over here to visit, when folks come over here as diplomats, when folks come over here to, to think about expanding their businesses or whatever, or have relations with this country, they come knowing the history. They come understanding the history of these United States so much so that they have to tell us the history of our own country. And that, my friends, is just just the most distasteful thing I could think of. That bothers me to my core. That other people could come in here tell us our histories we don't, because we don't because because we we're not interested in telling it. And we're not interested in telling it in, in a real truthful way. So I, I just, you know, I, America needs some therapy. I said it yesterday, it needs some therapy. I, I still believe it. I, I think we can be better citizens and better humans, but we have to have the will to be better citizens and better humans. You know, we have to have the will. And so far, I'm not seeing us having the will. I, I don't see the will. I, I, listen, I know there are a lot of people out there, boots on the ground, who are trying to bite, fight back against tyranny. I, I said it right. Tyranny and fascism, that they're fighting back. You know, these dummies, they don't even know. These, these Republican dummies talking about socialism and communism, they couldn't spell socialism if it walked up and knocked on their door with a pizza. These and these stupid people say it with such conviction, and that's the that's their get over. They just say stupid stuff with conviction. So it seems like they know what they're talking about, and it seems like they're that they are authorities on things, and they're not. They're just not. They're just not. They're just not. <laughs> and, and 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 it's the, I want to see the Republican Party implode. So they can get out the way. They just need to get out the way. And people need to quit voting for them. You know. And I'm not conservative. I I don't I don't understand the conservativeness. I think just throw everything out there and make sure everybody is taken care of. We could do it. There's enough money in the world. There's enough resources in the world. You know, it makes no sense that one percent of this country can control everything. I don't even know where that's right. That's not a success story. Why is that a success story? Why are we even saying that's a success story? Why are we holding that up as success? Why aren't we glorifying teachers? Why aren't we glorifying scientists? Why aren't we glorifying the people that picked up the refuse? They're the first responders, the people that pick up our garbage every single day. That's the first response. That's the first response to civilization and a beautiful city. That's the first response, the refuse workers. Ask me how I know. Let them go on strike and not pick up garbage for I don't know, two weeks. See if you like the city then. See if you have respect and value for them then. That's what, you know what I mean. Like, why are we why are we glorifying the things that we glorify? Why? We have to flip that script. We have to get to the business of. Flipping that script. That's why so many people have anxiety, and people, oh, I, I'm comparing myself. Oh, I'm a loser because I can, and blah. Outside of yourself, just looking for looking for compliments outside of yourself, looking for uh, uh, adulation outside of yourself. Not not trusting your own heart and mind, not believing that what you do in a community is 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 valuable. America has a long way to go. Has a long way to go, and a lot of ills to fix. And I honestly, I, I don't, I don't ever believe that it will be fixed. I think we'll get to a, uh, we'll get to the next level of comfortability with what is. I think, I think that's the the next frontier. I, I don't think we're going to fix any of these ills. We're not going to. We, we could talk equity inclusion all day and people can talk, you know, let me tell you how I know, because when I go into New Haven independent and I see people say the most ridiculous, hateful, mean, crazy things under the guise of, of, of a fake name of a, of a pseudonym. And then I guarantee you they mix in polite company with people who, who, they have spoken ill about without repercussion. So for me, people can talk equity and inclusion all day in front of people, but it's what they do in their policies and procedures that will tell me if they are walking the walk. And listen, when you talk equity and inclusion, it is not something you do today. It's something that you have to build in every single day. So I my faith in America to become a non-racist country, I, I, I think that's a dream, that's going to be a dream deferred forever and ever and ever. I think w- what's going to happen is we're just going to get to another a next level of comfortability with what is. And that may maybe you know maybe we could get some white folks to keep from killing us. Maybe we could make some inroads in police departments to not kill us wholesale. And maybe we could get, you know, if if we might get to the place where we could do something about guns in the streets and in these poor neighborhoods, you know, maybe, And, and maybe, maybe some freedom schools will pop up adjacent to public schools. So that education, so some real education, some real learning and some real, Uh, uh, building can happen. I don't have any faith in the education system. I think it's so broken and irreparable that it's uh, we're wasting our time having these conversations. Let the boards of education do what they do. Listen, I just chaired a board of education in a magnet school. I know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking out of turn. You know, boards of education across this country are contentious places. It's that boards of education across this country is like going to a WWF meet-up. It's like I bought a ticket to the WWF. Honest to God. And these are educa- well-educated people and parents in rooms coming to blows about, I don't know, whatever, because they don't like something. So you know what I need? I need freedom schools adjacent to public schools so that, you know what, whatever, whatever the six hours you get at public school is fine. And then you come on out and let freedom schools do what they do to, 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 to teach children history and culture and arts and all that kind of stuff. Cause I don't have any faith. I, I've lost faith. And you know, I never was one to believe that if I put my kid in a school, in, in a school all day, that that's the beginning and the end of their education. No, that, 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 that that's not the thing. Cause I knew my part I had to play in in making sure that they become re- well-rounded human beings. And I didn't leave that to teachers. I don't leave that to teachers. I needed to teach my kids history, then I'd give them a dose of it. There's all, listen, there's all kinds of educational opportunities. My whole sorority runs a whole academy for young girls. We wasn't waiting on the school to teach the things that we think are important. We just set up a whole academy. There's, the Sigmas have an academy. The Kappas have an academy. There's all kinds of people who understand that, you know, quietly understand that we're not going to depend on education solely in a class in a school to educate our children unfortunately unfortunately that the reality of the uh, uh, of this is that those of us who know and can do it's hard to sort of expand that out beyond our own borders you know beyond our own borders and that and therein therein lies the the problem that's why i need freedom schools to just pop up you know, Saturday academies, after-school programs that are designed specifically for for uh, academic educational pursuits that they don't get in school. I just read a, a piece the other day that they're finally they just finally offering um, AP courses on African American history. Can you imagine? Yeah, man, you got we got we got black people who don't, and I and I I don't I don't say this with disdain. Cause it's designed for this. It's, the system is designed that we don't know what we need to know about us as a people being here. That we don't know we don't know the stories. That we don't know that Sally Hemmings was 14 years old when when uh, when uh, the, the, then then um, uh, what's his face was t- took her to Paris and 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 she wanted to stay and he was like I'll sell everybody I'll sell your whole family. Well, we don't talk about George Washington and how he had the teeth of slaves in his mouth. We don't like to talk about that. We like to talk about him chopping down a cherry tree and a truth teller and how, and how he was embarrassed, but not so embarrassed not to do it. <laughs> not, not so embarrassed not to take the teeth. And it wasn't taking the teeth of dead slaves. Oh, no, 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 no. Wasn't doing that. So it's all these kinds of things that really just, I, 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 I am hopeful always, I am a romantic by nature. And I believe in the better angels and people, I do. But collectively as people, collectively, there's, there are forces out there that mean no good to anybody not even to their own selves. And so it's hard to keep your eye on your everyday practical life and the shenanigans of what goes on with the forces that make rules and regulations about how you move about the world. That's, that's where it gets dicey for people. Because if you, work in a, if you work in 46 hours a week or 52 hours a week, It's hard to stay on top of current events. It's hard to stay rooted in the everyday goings-on of community. And so we get weary. So those of us that can we must. And those that can't, we got to have their backs. So I'm grateful for all the people that that, um, protest, raise awareness, call things what they are, recognize fascism when they see it, raise awareness on things that we say we should be caring about, you know. Um, And it's not easy because there's a lot of fights and a lot of storms out there. And uh, it can be exhausting. And you'll you'll feel like you're being dragged under. The deeper you go, the more involved you become. That's the God's honest truth, you know. That's why we need people who can work on, something over here, and then another set of people working. I, I'm not with that. Everybody should work on all these issues because there are some issues that require some people to do it, and there are other issues that require some other people to do it. You know, it's hard, it's hard to be uh, concerned about reentry and then at the same time trying to be concerned about police brutality. It's hard. You can do it, but then you can't add another thing. Right. The other thing would be I have to go down to the board of education meeting because I got to hear what they're talking about. Right. See, now that's now you don't add a third thing to the to the list of things that you care about. So and then you throw in if you got a church home. And I don't. But if you have but I used to, if you have a church home, then they got some they've got some issues that they want you to 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 be a part of and help address, you know, feed the hungry clothe the naked go to the prison all that kind of stuff so now that's a fourth thing with its own sort of set of breakout things so you see what i mean so you could you could easily get consumed by a lot of different things in the course of just your everyday practical life and and so that's and that's where people get that's where the weariness comes in that's where the weariness comes in you know when, it, when we were when we were when we were marching for civil rights, civil rights was the issue. You know, there was other issues, but right now we're all gonna be focused on this issue, and everybody gonna come down this issue. Now there was a whole bunch of other things that needed our time, and there, and the NAACP and SNCC and all these other places kept their eye on the prize because the overarching arching issue was we got to be free first. We got to get to freedom first. And then we can tackle all the other things or we'll keep tackling all the other things, but freedom first. (sighs) So I I know it could get weary for people. That's why, you know, it's it's, you could take on too many things and it's easy to do, particularly if you have children and you care about the care of children. And so you do everything you can to ensure that somebody is thinking about the care of children, whether it's inside school or outside of school or in community, whatever. You want people to care about kids. That's your thing. And so you spend your time mobilizing around those issues, you know, but you also might care about good jobs and, and, and equity and, and, and inclusion in, in unions and, and all those kinds of things. So there's a lot of storms out there, a lot of fights to have. And you have to be selective with your time and your energy. And this is why, this is why, this is why we always say Black women are so damn tired. Because we understand this. We understand oh, we have to do 8 million things. And now I'm seeing these young sisters come up and they're like, mm, I don't have to do that. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. Damn it. <laughs> I see these young women These young sisters coming up, they're like, I can't do 20 things like my mama and my grandmama and them. I can't hold space for all the things. I I can only hold space for one thing, and then I'm going to take care of myself while I'm holding space for that one thing that I, I absolutely care about. And not that you don't care about all these other things, but you understand capacity and what you're able to do. And I think it's a beautiful thing that young women, these young women coming up, are being very selective about how they use their activism. And I'm not suggesting that there's no burnout with them because there is, you know, they have way more anxiety. Uh, These young women coming up have way more anxiety than I ever knew existed, but that's because they are becoming quite aware of, of their own feelings that they're not pushing down their own feelings for the sake of, the race the community husbands children they're not they're not they're not stuffing down all of that they're like allowing it to rise up and dealing with it and sometimes dealing with it means i can't be over here i can't be over here i can't do that thing i can only do this thing and this thing right and that's what i'm seeing with these young sisters it's a beautiful thing that they have the They have the courage and the fortitude to sort of say, I must take care of myself. It's the old dogs like me who get to almost 60. And then they're like, then we start like, you know what? I really don't have to do all these. I don't really have to do all these things. (laughs) I can can sit right here on my porch and drink some iced tea. (laughs) Let the babies march on down the street. I I could do that. Or, or I find other ways to sort of be uh, 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 in solidarity. And there are other ways to be in solidarity, as we know. You know, There are people out here writing a, a great, great white papers and, and opinion pieces and commentary on a great many things. I, I run it in the inner city. I relish it. I, I, I spend a lot of time looking at commentary because I think it's necessary for critical thinking to to hear other people's views you know and, and you don't have to be in you don't have to be in agreement you just have to like okay um, let me hear this and then you and then you oh that's trash or you know what i could get with some of that i'm going to take out the pieces that i think make sense for what's happening here and then build around that do you know what i mean so I'm just saying, you know, the, the world, the world is magical and the world is dark. The world is beautiful and the world is trash. The world is 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 abundant, and the world operates on scarcity. There's there's so so much uh, uh um there's so there's so many things that are in opposition to each other in the world that that's what makes the world go round you know that's what makes the world go go round and uh and i and i i like i like it i like the mystery of it i like the science of it i like the fear of it and i like um that i i can st- sit in the space and ponder all these things just just from a real human place i i don't have the answers for anybody's life i just can pontificate on what i see what i think and and listen there's no right here <laughs> there's only righteousness <laughs> and i'm trying to operate from a place of righteousness you know like I just want to tell the truth. I just want to always tell the truth and, and see the truth, see the truth. And I don't want to spin things, you know, And I don't want to, I don't want to wordsmith things to, to, to confuse or to bring more harm and to lie. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't use language like that. I don't, I don't. And, uh, and I don't want to. So, and I know that people get paid good money to do it. I, I'm, not, I'm not one of those people. So I, I just like to I just like to think about things deeply. I'd like to um, see the humanity in things and people. And listen, I'm not one of those people that thinks uh, I, I think if you're if you're a Klan member, I, I'm 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 not gonna have sympathy for you. I'm not even going to have empathy for you. I'm going to know that your objective is destruction and destruction of human life and a specific specific kind of human life—black and brown and other. So I, I, so make no mistake. While I believe in the goodness of people, I also understand. That there are heinous people in the world who mean nobody no good. I, I understand that. So, and that's fine. I I'm not so with God, <laughs> I, I don't care who he is this. I'm not so with God that I'm gonna turn the other cheek for any reason. I'm I'm never going to be that person. That's all right. God knows my heart. <laughs> That's all right. And and I, I don't have no fear of going to hell. Whatever, whatever y'all think hell is, whatever. Whatever you think it is, I don't have no fear of that. I don't. I really don't. And I don't believe in that burn in eternity. You know what hell is going to be for me? Every time I want something to drink, it'll be a glass of milk. <laughs> that, now, that would be hell. Because <laughs> I have a severe dairy allergy. <laughs> so... So that would be my that would be my hell right there. <laughs> a, a refrigerator full of milk. <laughs> and I'm thirsty. <laughs> That's that would be my hell. I think people's hell is of their own making. <clears throat> I don't think there's no universal hell. Uh and if there is, it would be Ukraine right now and Somalia and 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 all the places that are experiencing uh human human inflicted crises. Uh, that, so that would be the hell. So that would be so so that's on earth. So if we could create hell on earth, we certainly can create heaven on earth. And I think I think that's what the Bible calls us to do. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> as as it is in heaven. <laughs> So I'm not I don't I don't spend my time I don't spend my time thinking about heaven or hell. I do not spend my time thinking of being pleasing to God because I think the fact that I breathe every day says that I am pleasing to God. I don't think all my actions in my life have been pleasing to God, but I think as a human being I am pleasing to God. But God does not call me to be pleasing to him. I think God calls me to be uh, a decent human being in community. I think that's, I think that for me, that's the, the, the biggest message, you know, not, not to just show up at church, but to be the church, not just to show up and hear the word but to show up and live the word and spread the word but not spread the word like i'm gonna go and slap people over the head with scripture and use scripture as a weapon i, I don't think god calls us to do that that's that's just man-made foolishness i know some kind and generous people who don't know a damn thing about scripture well <laughs> I, I ain't never read a bible in their life but i but i i have to believe that they are close closer to the Christian idea than, than I've ever seen anybody be. I know people who, who call themselves Christians, and they are the meanest, hateful people that I've ever seen. I mean, mean and hateful, like, snappy and just sour. So I think we I think we get it wrong about a lot of things. I'm not saying I get it right. I'm saying I like the exploration of what that means. I like the exploration. And as long as I have breath to explore and to ponder and to contemplate and discern, who am I, what am I on this planet? And and what is my connection to the world, to the earth, to the air, to the wind, to the seas? What is my connection? To my fellow man. Those are the those are the things I like to think about. I I like thinking about that stuff. How can I be better at it? Like where can I where can I think about making a difference? Not not from an ego place, just I see I see something that needs to happen in that space. How can I make that happen in that space? That's that's what power and influence means to me. How can I make a difference over there? You know, how, how can I, how can I, how can I change the trajectory of, of something from, from, from this to that? I, I like that kind of stuff. And I invite people to consider it. I think that's why I started a fund for uh, women coming out of prison. Now, I haven't given any way money yet um, because we're still building the fund. And I'm very excited. (laughs) I'm a philanthropist. (laughs) A bona fide philanthropist. It tickles me. It tickles me because it just speaks to the the power of community that I get to be in that says, hey, we think that's a damn good idea. We're going to help you. That, that, That means everything to me. It means everything to me. You know, I, I, I started a, um, a, a, a fundraiser for Possible Futures, uh, Lauren Anderson. I just, on a whim, not on a whim, but I, I was purposeful thought. I, you know, all the children in that neighborhood, you know, build their own libraries. How do children build libraries? Well, if we don't, we don't give them books, if they don't have access to books, then they can't do it. I love, to, I love libraries. I said this yesterday, I love libraries. Going to the library is magical. But there's something to be said to buying a book of your choose buying to purchase a book that or, 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 or pick a book, choose a book of your liking and, and then have it forever and ever so that you can read it back and back and back and back and back at your leisure over and over and over again at your leisure. And uh, I think we've raised about $500 in just one day just $500. I think, I think we're up, I think we're up to $500. And, uh, and I, that's just the power of community. That is really the power of community and the power of an ask. That's all it was. I just put it out there. I said, listen, this is, I, 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 I want y'all to help me with this. That a simple ask and, 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 it's it's five hundred dollars now. And I don't know when we'll shut it off, but i I it just means every time a kid come in that store, they'll get a book. And and they'll become readers. And someday after I'm long, after I'm gone, someday after I'm gone, somebody will say, you know, I was at, I remember when I went to Possible Futures bookstore on the corner of Edgewood and Hotchkiss, and and there was a book. And it changed my life. Now I will never be around to hear that story. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'll, I'll be gone. Hi, this is Babs Rawls Ivy from New Haven, Connecticut, and you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, streaming live at newhavenindependent.org. So, I've been feeling really sick and found out I tested positive
1: for COVID. Are you vaccinated? No, I feel like everyone is bound to get it at some point anyways.
2: I had COVID, but since I'm vaccinated, I didn't experience any symptoms. When you're feeling better, I would consider getting the vaccine to protect yourself and others.
0: The COVID-19 vaccine is safe and effective, and it improves people's lives. Thanks to this vaccine, there is less spread and fewer symptoms reported by those who get infected. Now everyone over the age of six months can get it, and no appointment is necessary. Find out more at nhvvax.com, nhvvax.com. Make summer safer. Protect your family from COVID-19. Anyone over nine months old can get vaxed. No appointment necessary. Visit nhvvax.com, that's nhvvax.com, for everything you need to know.
3: Even when down, i stand the oh, oh, Do you love me? You don't belong Sometimes I wish I wasn't born Crying tears, bear me dementia Wouldn't you say? was all
2: Distant shores I've been waiting Wanting more For the whole night And it ain't right I've been saying What's on my mind Trying to explain What can't be defined And for so long It's been so strong Suddenly it's clear Now that I can hear These love notes, the ones that I wrote, all oh, these melodies. Here are some memories, and these love notes I found in an old coat mean something new all. Oh, Want to lean on? Can you hear me? Come near me. I've been dreaming my angel will come, but I never expected that you'd be the one. Now I found you. I wanna stay around you. Suddenly it's clear now that I can hear. love notes, the ones that I wrote, All oh, these melodies, here are some memories, these love notes, I found in an old coat, means something new, all because of you, found in an old coat they mean something new all because of you
0: people welcome back to the second hour of love babs love talk on babs rose ivy i'm delighted to talk to now kathy is it hermes like the expensive de- designer line
1: <laughs> not at all i'm not related to anybody wealthy or the greek god it's hermes, <laughs> kathy hermes.
0: so kathy hermes is here because uh, she's got an, a talk coming up at the the new haven museum which is one of my favorite spaces in the city I think it's one of the coolest places. Um, but anyway, she's coming to talk about uncovering their history, African, African-American, and Native American burials, burials presentation. And I think this is happening September 14th. You can go to their site and, and log on so that y'all can, can go. But you're, you're like a, uh, you're, you're an educator, historian, author, and and this is what you know a great deal about. <laughs> <laughs> So how did you you. talk talk to me about uh, when you wake up one day, do you say, you know what? I I really want to know about what people were like in this state way before anybody else was thinking about what people were like in this state.
1: That's, that's (laughs) how much of a nerd I am. I actually do wake up thinking that (laughs) (laughs) I, I think, um, This began for me in 1999 when I, um, I'd been living in Connecticut for about two years, teaching at Central Connecticut State University, and I was asked to do a documents piece on Native people for Connecticut History Review, which is the academic journal put out by the Association of Scholars in Connecticut History, and I discovered that there were about eight Native American estate administrations in Hartford County before 1750. And I started transcribing those wills and estate administrations. And after that, I became obsessed with finding out who these people were and what their connections were. And, And then jumping forward to 2018, the Ancient Burying Ground Association in Hartford was interested in knowing how many people of color were buried in the ancient burying ground because the number 300 had always been thrown around but nobody really knew and they also wanted to know who those people were to some extent right they wanted a you know a report and so what i proposed instead was to create a website where we would try to find the names of every single person of color we could, and we would put them in a database, and then we would create a website memorial where each one would have a profile on that website as a kind of virtual marker.
4: Hmm.
1: Because right now, if I don't know if, how many of your listeners have been to the Ancient Burying Ground in Hartford, even though it's pretty prominent because it's on Main Street and Gold Street on the corner there, behind Center Church, a lot of people walk by it every day and don't really know it's there. But it's now about a quarter of an acre, and there are, say, 415 or so headstones um, that are in the burying ground, and those have all been cataloged. But at one time, this was about four to six acres and held 6,000 people. Whoa. Yeah. And so... um, And so we found about 500 people of color that we think are probably buried there. And because we don't know for sure, because there are no headstones for anybody but the 415, um, what we did was we rated them according to confidence. So if we found them on a sexton's list, meaning like a list of the person who dug the graves or recorded the burials, we knew we were highly confident that they were in the burying ground. If we found that a notice that they had died, for example, in the newspaper, um, then we were somewhat confident because we knew they died in Hartford and anybody who died in Hartford was usually buried in the burying ground. Um, then we have slightly confident where they were mentioned perhaps in a probate record because of course, enslaved people were property and so they were inventoried as property in the estate administrations of white people who who owned them.
4: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And so if somebody was an elderly person of color in a probate record, then we assumed that they probably died in Hartford. For younger people, we couldn't assume that because it was of course still possible to sell them or to manumit them uh, and they might leave the state. So we tried not to make assumptions you know, if we if we didn't have some reason to think they were buried there, we tried not to make assumptions. And then we have the not confident. They, they appear in records. They seem old enough to have died in Hartford, but we're not too sure. And so we put those as not confident. So I would say we're highly or somewhat confident about 400 people. That's a lot.
0: It's a lot. Um, That's a lot. So did you I think I want to I want to know were there were there separate burials places for enslaved people as opposed to with white folks? Like how did you how did you yeah. figure
1: that part out? Well, so we had to operate totally with written records. You know, we couldn't, we don't have any archaeological uh, information and we don't have any headstones, as I mentioned. Um, So we went to the church records and to government records, uh, court cases, probate records, um, even Siemens certificates and things like that to get the names of the people of color who lived in Hartford and then kind of sort out who might be buried there. And as far as we know, um, people weren't separated by color. They may have been separated by uh, economics, right? Um, but we don't know that. The, the the bearing ground doesn't seem to have been divided up in any particular way okay. um, that I know of. And that's different from some cemeteries, like Grove Street Cemetery um in New Haven did have a place for people of color. In fact, that's what it was called on a map from the early nineteenth century.. Um, so, so, some graveyards were like that, and others were not. And I think it probably depended for enslaved people where the owners wanted to bury them. Um For free people of color, I think they could have purchased uh any spot in the in the graveyard. Um, you had to pay for the burial and for the coffin and things like that. So all of that was billed to the estate. Mm.
0: so. When you do this kind of work, Kathy, what what do you want us to understand and take away from this kind of uh, looking at history? Because this is looking at burial things. Mm -hmm. And and what, what does that tell us? And what should we take away from that?
1: You know, it's this hugely personal and intimate view that you get of people at death. And I think what I'd like people to see in this particular group of people of color in, in Hartford in the colonial period is just the, the incredible humanity present there among people who were not always treated as fully human or fully members of the community. And some of it is shocking. For example, um, in, the, in the Sexton's records, you'll sometimes see, unnamed Negro, Um, you'll see an age and a cause of death and the name of an owner, but no name. And that we found 125 unnamed people. And that is just, you know, it's deliberate, right? And they haven't left off the name because they don't know who this is. When somebody is 104 years old, they know exactly who that is. Even when it's an infant, an infant sometimes might not be named, but the parent is known, but there, you know, the mother certainly, but those names are left off frequently. And I think what I want people to see about enslavement in Connecticut was that it was not some kinder gentler form of slavery. There is no such thing. And the enslavement of African people was brutal. Um, we have stories on our website about family structure, for example, and like how, how families could be separated. Um, one story is um, Abigail Woodbridge, who was the wife of the minister of the first church, Timothy Woodbridge, and Timothy Woodbridge was also a president of Yale. Um, she gave her son a wedding present of two enslaved people, a couple, and their infant son, but that separated that couple and the son from their daughters. And then Timothy Woodbridge gave one of the daughters to his daughter. And so family structure was just torn apart, the same as you would read about in the South. Mm -hmm. Um, The punishments were the same, whippings. Um, You had people dying of the same diseases like dropsy. And that was from nutritional deficiencies. So this was not some kind of benign system. Um, so what do you make of,
0: I, I, I find this fascinating. So for a historian, what do you make of this whole conversation that this country seems to be in, 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 gripped with of critical race theory and not telling the story of how enslaved people arrived here and what their lives were like for fear of white folks feeling like they're being persecuted for something that they themselves didn't do, their ancestors.
1: But how do you how do what do you make of this this conversation? Yeah, I get asked this a lot. In fact, one of my cousins asked me, you know, is critical race theory something that they teach in grade schools? And I said, no, even when I was in law school, it's a, it's a legal theory, right? Critical studies is, critical legal studies is a field in law school. And even when I was in law school, we heard very little about it. Um, but it was a theory founded by Derek Bell to kind of explain why African-Americans were treated so differently in the criminal justice system. And it's really something that was engaged with at a very high level of thinking in legal circles um but that said the problem of race in this country is is unsolved right i mean and that's why every so often i think we get these um surges of uh, racism is a low level thing in our society all the time but we get these surges of anger on many sides it's different kinds of anger and i think what we're seeing right now is Uh, as you mentioned, that white people feel blamed. For me, this is a, you know, you're, you're responsible for what you do, not for what your ancestors have done. But if you don't change and you don't do something to address the past injustices, then you're continuing to do something wrong, right? And that's why you feel some residual guilt, I think. You know, it's a it's about trying to change yourself and those around you for the better and making society more equal. That's the promise that is made in the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution in the 14th Amendment. And we owe something to posterity to live up to that.
0: Mm. Are you struck by how people have the conversation about Uh, Southern slavery versus Northern slavery and that there's this myth that there was no slavery here and that, you know, it was a, it was different.
1: (laughs) Oh, 100%. So I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. And of course the, the famous Connecticut person we knew was Harriet Beecher Stowe. And I thought when I was growing up, I thought of, um, Connecticut as an abolitionist state i had i had no idea that there were enslaved people here now once i got to graduate school and i started um, working on the puritans my my dissertation was on religion and law in colonial new england so i certainly understood that there were enslaved people but i didn't really know much about the conditions of it until i did this project for the ancient burying ground association i didn't know what I told you before about the statistics with what people died of, right? Or just how poverty stricken some people were. Um, You know, dying with only a pair of pants and a lean-to, even though they might be free people of color. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes the poverty was just staggering. And what is a lean-to? A lean-to is (laughs) <laughs> like a shed that's falling down that oh, okay. <laughs> gives, yeah, gives you some shelter at night. Um, and, and, but I also, conversely, I also didn't know about some of the free people of color in the very early period. So one of the first things I found for the ancient burying ground were wills left by Philip and Ruth Moore in 1695 and 1696, respectively. And they were landowners in what is now East Hartford over by where Goodwin University is. Um, They had property, they had an orchard, they had a farm, they lived among their white neighbors, they were members of the church, um, and their children and grandchildren were members of the church. But, you know, as, more and more enslaved people came into the state. Being Black meant being enslaved. And the the status of the Moors fell, unlike the status of their white neighbors, which tended to be upwardly mobile. And after 1737, I cannot find any more Moors in Hartford. I don't know what happened to them. I know that They sold, they quit claimed a lot of their land to their white neighbors and probably they moved because it was becoming clear that being black and owning land was something that was not going to be easy in Connecticut.
4: Mm.
1: Um, And so, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, and then there are people like Sally Cuff, who was enslaved by John Haynes Lord, one of the richest men in Connecticut he, he when he died he had an estate of over 5000 pounds he baptized her in 1768 in 1782 she paid him 100 pounds for her freedom um, just 2 years later the gradual emancipation law went into effect but she would not have benefited from that probably and so this poor woman who had been enslaved her entire life paid one of the richest men in Hartford an enormous sum to be free. Wow. And both it's both the cruelty of it and the inspiring part of it are both side by side.
0: Wow. So, so Connecticut has a very rich slavery history.
1: Yes, yes. And such interesting stories. Samuel Gibson, when he died in 1795 in his thirties, he was quite young. He has an obituary in the Hartford Current that refers to him as Mr. Gibson. He had been enslaved in the West Indies, was purchased by a family in Guilford, the Frisbee family, bought his freedom, moved to Hartford, opened a grocery store. And when I say grocery, I mean, he did business in all of New England. He advertised in all of the big New England papers. He was well-respected as a grocer his apprentice was his former master's son and when he died he left his entire estate to that young man cuz he didn't have family i he did not seem to have family and i think you know it's a it's a complicated thing right you're when a person is enslaved they have they're natally alienated that's what the sociologists call it right you don't Have your natal family from birth often, and you might not be able to form a family because your owner controls all of that. Your owner decides if you can marry or not, right? And so a lot of enslaved men who came from other places, either from West Africa or from the Carolinas or from the West Indies, when they died, they did not have wives or children, and they sometimes left their estates to the people who had formerly enslaved them. Wow. That's heavy. It It is. It really is. Oh, and, and it's hard to, and I think that's the complexity of it, right? It's not, I think what I want people to take away from all of this is that these were complex human relationships in a colonial world that one had to survive in, right? And human beings seek out affection. They seek out relationships, but they also are subject to abuse. And we all know that abusive relationships can be complicated too. Um, So I think we don't know enough to assess every individual relationship because the records are pretty scant, but it tells us that this was a complex society with many different kinds of relationships in it.
0: So talk to me about the, the indigenous people and their relationship yeah. to, to how they were treated and what was going on in their burial situations.
1: Well, so from the first, um, in 1637, when Hartford was settled, there was the Pequot War. And the Pequot War resulted in the captivity of most Pequot women and children and boys under 12. Other Pequot people were sold, uh, the adult men were sold into slavery on Providence Island and Bermuda, places like that um, after the war. And in 1638 in the treaty, the Wangunk people, who were the people who settled Hartford, uh, Weathersfield, Haddam, Middletown, so the Wangunk people were left out of the Treaty of Hartford, and they've largely been erased from Connecticut history. One of my missions is to restore them to some prominence. Um, we have, for example, a number of stories. Sarah Onepenny the Elder, who died in 1713, in the home of William Whiting in Hartford, who was a military man and, a, and the jailer at one time and um, quite a prominent man. She left her estate to her grandson, Scipio 2 William Whiting was made the guardian of that young man. In 1724, after Whiting's wife passed away in an epidemic, Whiting courted a widow in Newport. Whiting and Scipio Two Shoes left Connecticut in 1727 and moved to Newport where Scipio became Scipio Brown, free person of color, the most litigious person of color in colonial Newport. So, <laughs> and Scipio and was- Was, was he suing appra- people? In- like, what was he doing? <laughs> yeah, suing people. He was a Carter. And so he wanted his money. And if people would sue him, he invented the countersuit in Newport. He would sue them back. Uh, You're suing me. I'm going to sue you. And he was part Wangunk and part African. His father was African. His mother was Wangunk. Wow. And uh, so, you know, we so Sarah Onepenny is almost certainly buried in Hartford in the burying ground. Um, and she was the sunk squaw that is referred to in records in Middletown because she was a very powerful elder woman. She was the granddaughter of Sequin or Soeg, who was the Grand Sachem of the Wangunk at the time of colonization. And um, she and her siblings and cousins lived all along the Connecticut River and had many descendants and I've been doing their genealogies for 20 years now. So you
0: found, so there are descendants of these folks.
1: Yes. And do they, do
0: they have any stories to tell you about what they remember, what has been told, what what has been handed
1: down? So the descendants of um, like the, of Sequin, uh, the only ones I've talked to are the descendants of Turamugus, who was the sachem of Weathersfield, or, you know, Pequod, but what's now Wethersfield. Um, But I have talked extensively to Gary O'Neill, who is Wangunk. And he's a family historian. And really, uh, although the Wangunk have no tribal structure, he's really the tribal historian. And he's published on that in the Connecticut Archaeological Bulletin, family stories that are really just incredible. Um, So yes, there are Wangunk uh, left. There are... um, People of certainly kind of mixed heritage, Mohegan, Wangunk, Pequot, Nipmunk, um, Tungstus. Um, and of course, a lot of the Wangunk went westward with something called the Brotherton Movement and their descendants now live in Wisconsin. Mm.
0: So, so so, tell me, uh, tell me, because you you are the director of un- Uncovering Their History. Yes. So what 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 do you hope to accomplish? Like what what
1: what is the mission and the goal? So I would say there are multiple missions. I mean, one is that in a big picture way, I'm trying to understand more of these colonial relationships and how Native people and people of African descent. Um strategically found their way in the colonial world. You know, how did they interact? What were their relationships like? Um, I'm using a lot of court cases for that, but I want a big picture to understand their place in that world. Um, But there's another purpose, I think, which is that many people believe that you can't find out anything about the African and native people because there's just too little information. And that's not true. It's harder to find and it's cumbersome. And so what I wanna do is I wanna provide the starting point for that. That was the whole purpose of this ancient burying ground project that we're hoping can be a model for other um, burying ground groups and researchers who want to undertake it. So we created ancestry.com trees for every named person we found. And we researched to the extent we could so that people who are coming backward can meet up with our research that went forward, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. we started with people born in 1690 and worked our way up. And, but people who are starting from there, uh, you know, from themselves right now and working their way down can meet up with our trees. Mm. And then we also did relationship trees, which are um, other relationships. So master-slave, right, which you can't put in an Ancestry.com tree, or business partners, um, the beneficiaries of wills. Um, Believe it or not, some white people did leave things to the people they enslaved or they manumitted them in their wills, but also people of color left wills, native people left wills. I have 46 Native wills that I've wow. found in Connecticut, um, and lots of African-American wills. And why did they leave wills? Because this was important to
0: them. They wanted to what they continue had to figure a legacy?
1: Out, they had to figure out how to protect their land and make sure that their Children were taken care of and their grandchildren were taken care of. And oftentimes they were struggling to figure out how to do that. Um, William Whiting, that I mentioned earlier, was kind of a cultural broker for several Native women who left wills to try to protect things like 30 Mile Island, um, which was Native land, or just the land in the Wangunk Reservation. Um, and. And I think at some point too, as native people Christianized, they did it because that's what their neighbors did. They were acculturating to some mm-hmm. degree, um, but you still find interesting things that um, separate their estates from other estates, the use of native names, um, the some of the possessions. Um, for example, among a lot of African, or African-American men, they possess violins. And I think that's such a, it's such a distinguishing feature. It's not that no white people had violins, but so many African-American men have them. And people also had Bibles. And that tells you something about literacy. Like I found many more literate people of color than I thought I would find.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Wow.
1: And so- these little details matter.
0: Oh, I, I absolutely agree that they matter because it gives us a, 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 a intimate look and a bigger picture of what these folks look like. Because uh, I, I know people in Connecticut, just some of them really refuse to believe that s- slavery existed and that it was some kind of kinder, gentler. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I hear it all the time. I, I have heard it at public talks I've given. And. And I understand, you know, this is a long standing myth. And if you look at the published account of who's buried in the ancient burying ground, there were accounts published in the 1880s. And there are um, people of color who are mentioned in there, both native people and uh, people of African descent, but not all of them. So what you get, is the feeling that well, there were all the there were only a few, and they were baptized and well cared for and buried in the ancient burying ground like family members, and you know this is a post Civil War Connecticut as abolition state, right as Union state. That's and these antiquarians these. Um, People in the daughters of the American Revolution at the time and colonial societies wanted to paint a positive picture of Connecticut as anti-slavery and but they did so at the expense of really the, the truth. truth the truth <laughs> <laughs> they did so at the expense of the truth, and I'm not
0: so certain that you know even the ones who felt like they weren't as bad as their sisters and brothers in the South, I bet you they were terrible, horrible people, but it's hard to reconcile that. So Kathy, tell me, how do you as a white woman take on this work and, and, and do, are you constantly adjusting your equity and inclusion lens? Like, how do you, how do you do this work
1: and, and be white in it? (laughs) Yeah, you know, um, I'm over 60 and Um, And I grew up in a place um, that was very homogeneous in a German Catholic family. I thought, I mean, if you weren't German Catholic, you were German Protestant or you were Irish Catholic. That was like who lived around me. Um, And, you know, the book that changed my life, that made me become a historian, in fact, was a book by Edmund S. Morgan called American Slavery, American Freedom. And Morgan argued in that book that this slavery freedom paradox was really at the core of American history, and that every freedom possessed by white people was obtained in a way because of the enslavement of others, that this was a symbiotic relationship. This had never occurred to me that my freedom, Depended on the unfreedom of someone else. Wow! Right? And it it shook my world. I, I mean, it made me think: Does my freedom as somebody who's not incarcerated depend on somebody being incarcerated? Is my position in the labor market advanced because there's somebody else who can't get that job? Um, you know, what levels of unfreedom exist that contribute to my having so many. And and I thought if I could do something even like one hundredth this good as that book, it would be worth my while. And so I abandoned my desire to be a lawyer and I became a historian. Now, I did also go to law school because I don't know, I felt I owed it to my father or something. <laughs> so I, I became a legal historian, but it, it changed my life. Um, I grew up working class. My father was a police officer. Um, I I didn't even, you know, I wasn't thinking that I, I could ever go to a place like Yale and study with Edmund Morgan, but that is what I did. Um, and... This was just an enormous amount of upward mobility and privilege for me that I know depends in part, some part on my whiteness, um, particularly at the time that I did it um, because equity and inclusion wasn't a thing. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think it was for women, you know, like I benefited from some affirmative action directed at women for certain. especially when I went to college, I got a state incentive grant in Idaho because they didn't have enough women in college. So, you know, um, but I think my whole life has been adjusting to what I've learned as a historian and incorporating that into both my personal views, but also into the scholarship that I do and what I try to write and publish. Um, and I don't think you can leave race or class out of it, or mm. frankly sex, Yeah, um, it, it all matters. Oh, I enjoyed this conversation.
0: I'm so glad I got to speak to you. And if anybody else wants to, have, wants to hear more of this, um, she's going to be September 14th at the New Haven Museum. And yes. there's a whole conversation and exploration and exhibition of this very topic, which I think people will find fascinating.
1: I I so appreciate being here, and I I hope you don't mind if I put in a little plug for the magazine that I'm now. Yes, on. absolutely. Um, so, can so I just retired from Central Connecticut State uh, from the history department, where I taught early American history, and I became the publisher of Connecticut Explored, and our issue this month, the fall uh, 2022 issue, is devoted to 20 game changers, projects that are changing the future of the way history will be done in Connecticut. And so, of course, they're introducing new stories. And many of these are stories of people of color and groups that have been marginalized and left out of the big picture. And so, um, we have some um, great talks and public events coming up. And in fact, the New Haven Museum talk that I'm doing. I agreed to do when I was still a professor at CCSU and didn't know that I would be publisher of Connecticut Explored at the time. But Connecticut Explored is the reason this talk is happening because we named the ancient burying ground as a game changer.
0: Oh, good. <laughs> That's exciting. I love this. Well, I'm going to do my best to make it to the talk because I want to hear more of this. I've enjoyed meeting you and talking to you. Thank you so much, Kathy.
1: Thank you for having me. It's, it's been such a pleasure.
0: Oh, come back anytime. We can have all more right. conversations about all the other things that you find and learn and discover. I'm here for it. So feel free to make this your place to come to talk.
1: <laughs> all right. I will. Thank you so much, Beth. <laughs> all right. Have a good day. Everybody have
0: a good weekend. Thank you, Harry Drolls. I'll be back on Monday. Uh, y'all go to the New Haven Museum to their website. Register for this talk, September fourteenth. You you will not be disappointed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.